Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. Apologies in advance for anyone who is sick and tired of listening to me talk to myself and other people about hair metal. This is my fatal flaw, friend. Anytime somebody writes a 500-page uncensored oral history of hair metal, if that person's willing to talk to me, I am going to have them on this show. I apologize, but that is both a threat and a promise. Real quick before we get that underway, do you know I have another new podcast? It is called The Deuce Me and my dear friend, the people's champ, Jesse Mae Peluso, getting together and chopping it up every single week. You can listen to episode one and watch it for free at patreon.com slash the deuce podcast. Listen to this show. Enjoy this show. When you're done, keep this in the back of your mind. Then go listen to episode one or watch it for free of The Deuce at patreon.com slash the deuce podcast. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City-adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a pair of journalists who have combined their efforts on a massive oral history devoted to a subject that, as everyone listening to this knows all too well, is near and dear to my heart, entitled Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. Hello and welcome from your respective homes, Tom Bozier and Richard Beanstalk. Hey, Mike. Hey. Thanks for having us. It's so weird off the bat. I, I just I feel like anytime I talk to anybody about, well, I'm, I'm going to address the elephant in the room right off the bat about hair metal. I don't know if I'm allowed to if I'm throwing around a pejorative term to me. That's just where it fell. I don't know if the guys who played funk liked having their music called funk, but that's just what it is. Where do you two stand on the term hair metal? I know where a lot of the bands you spoke to stand on it, but where do you personally stand? That's what this stuff is, right? I use the term liberally mm-hmm. and I don't really actually, I, it's gotten to the point where the, the words in my mind have been uh, removed of their meaning in a weird way. I just say, Oh yeah, it's a book. You know, I, I wrote a book about hair metal, but um, I do think like, so I, it doesn't bother me. Um, obviously the, you know, serious XM station devoted to this music is called hair nation, you know? So it's definitely yeah. is what it is. We in making the book were very careful. Like you're, as you may have noted, not to use the term. We do not use it. We probably, you know, it, it might've been clearer and maybe a couple more books to say hair metal on the cover of the book it doesn't it says you know the 80s hard rock explosion and the the reason we did that was as sort of a sign of respect to the artists in the book like i you know i think they acquie nobody involved at this point does not know that this is how their music is referred to and they acquiesce to it but at the same time it is slightly derogatory you know as it because it does dismiss everything except the appearance of the of the people's hair so you know we people were very generous with their time um and we were really trying to sort of do the a book about this that was um not dismissive in any way so we chose not to use it sort of as a sign of respect to everybody that we interviewed um and sort of as a acknowledgement that they might find the term to be sort of a bummer. You know, I don't think that they're going to not do a station ID for hair nation because they find it to be overly offensive. Um, but it's still, it, it was sort of like a, a nod to the fact that especially for the entire decade of the nineties, this was a, a dismissive term. Yeah, no, I've been in the room with Sebastian Bach doing station IDs for Hair Nation through gritted teeth. So yeah, they'll <laughs> they'll, they'll do it. But I, I I I honestly don't understand why it's just, it's just a it's just a term. But I, I guess I respect the way that they uh, 
that they feel about it. Obviously, it has not been the most respected musical genre at large in the sphere of you know music of the past. So I guess I can see how people would have become touchy. Um, I wanted to ask you guys before we even get into the subject of the book. So th- your book came on my radar because another friend of mine, current SiriusXM um, employee Brian Cullen, mentioned to me that he heard you guys on Tom Morello's podcast and said that I should talk to you as well. And so I went and spent a little bit of time with that interview that you did with Tom. And in speaking to Tom, you mentioned that the two of you, I think, first crossed paths working at Guitar World magazine in the mid 90s and i i would love for you to because i was fascinated by this subject at the time that this was happening to talk a little bit about the culture of those places now these magazines had been made jimi hendrix eddie van halen name a billion guys in the 80s steve vi and now all of a sudden you're putting kurt cobain on the cover because you'd be an idiot not to and kurt cobain's message to the guitar playing world i think is sort of repackaging the Ramones ethos of if you can figure out how to turn on the distortion and maybe buy a wah-wah pedal, you already have all the tools that you need to be a successful rock player. So I was just always curious at the time, there must have been the holdovers who hated that they could no longer keep glorifying the Red Beaches and Nuno Betancourt's of the world. They must have also been hiring younger people who were part of that grunge musical um, revolution. And also, I assume there must have been a little bit of fear and trepidation that the days of those magazines were numbered because the shredding, the neoclassical Randy Rhodes stuff was so out of fashion, it seemed like it might never come back. Can you just talk a little bit about what it was like being behind the scenes at Guitar World after grunge had happened? Yeah, well, I um, I started there in 97. I was there, I started a few years after Tom and I came in in 97 as a, as an intern, but, you know, like Tom, I mean, I grew up on the eighties stuff and I grew up reading guitar world and, and you're right. It was all the shredders in the eighties and all that kind of thing. And, you know, red beach and Vito Brada and all these guys. Um, by the time I got there, clearly this is not what we were covering. Um, this is not what you could cover. Um, you know, and like, I guess you could still, if you were ever going to write, if George Lynch was going to get any coverage in 1997, 1998, like it still was going to be in guitar world. Um, that was kind of the place where maybe you could squeak some of these guys in because there was still this appreciation of playing guitar, but for the most part, you just weren't doing it there either. And it was this sort of, you know, broadly speaking, what people call this kind of like anti guitar playing, right. Where wasn't about technique and it wasn't about really having, you know, hot shit gear and all that. It was like, it was the grunge ethos. Um, so it was definitely a weird time the magazine, you know, as far as I recall, was still doing great with this kind of music. Cause it was still guitars, guitars, guitars on everything, just a different type of guitar playing. Um, but even back then, Tom and I, you know, we would still just be having conversations about like, you know, whoever, John Sykes and, and, you know, and, and George Lynch and all these guys and Warren D. Martini, like that was the stuff that I loved um, as well as loving, you know, the stuff that was a lot of the stuff that was current at the time, but it definitely was this world. It took a little while into the two thousands where all of a sudden it kind of came back and not only could you write about these guys, but they could also be, Hey, on the cover of the magazine again, because people got back into this stuff and they were sort of seen as classics in a way, the same way Eddie Van Halen was, you know, years earlier. So it did come back around, but it, it is interesting that at the time, at least when I got into it, and I think Tom could probably say something similar, um, all the stuff that we're writing about in this book and all the stuff that was in really in our wheelhouse was not the stuff that we were writing about as professionals. Yeah. And I mean, I started there in 94, I guess, February 94 as an intern. And then I was managing editor like 96, 97. And Brad Talinsky, who, by the way, uh, a plug for him, because his new book, Van Halen, came out two days ago. That's uh, a great uh, sort of serve conversations with Eddie Van Halen. It's great. All of his interviews compiled and like sequentially. But Brad Talinsky, who hired me and was sort of my mentor, and I guess a little, and Rich's too, there, he had one thing is he didn't, he personally did not like glam metal. And he was actually a keyboard player. And two, the staff was actually very small. Like there was only five of us, but he was, he's a very shrewd person and he perceived correctly. And this happened like right before I had gotten there that 
the magazine needed to pivot or die. Um, and really, when you see how bands of this era were sort of canceled for a decade, but not only the bands, but also, you know, every producer who worked with these bands did not work in the 90s. Um, the A&R guys who had signed these bands could not sign bands anymore because bands were like, we don't want to sign with the guy who signed Warrant. You know, so there was a there was. And so Brad perceived correctly and it's it's sad, but it speaks to the point of how this music ended up that he had to switch fast because there was not going to be a real coexistence. You know, some people like were, you know, Kim Thayil and, and Jerry Cantrell will admit they loved a lot of this stuff. But there was a lot of, I think, cool posturing going on. And so he had to move so that the new bands would want to be in the magazine. And so that meant quickly just cutting off this other era. Um, and he did it very, you know, sort of effectively, you know, by the time I started in 94, it's Soundgarden covers, it's, you know, Pearl Jam covers. And I can tell you that we, it was the mag and the magazine was huge. Like it was, you know, it, it gave you really a sense of false confidence you know, but we could really do no wrong for a couple of years. Like the, as much as shred culture had died or been killed, guitar culture was incredibly strong still. That I had never thought of it that way, obviously, if, if it had been the prodigy yeah. rather than Nirvana, who had completely pivoted everything, then you guys would have been truly screwed. I never thought about that. And it's, it's interesting what you say. I interviewed the producer, Howard Benson, who produced some of my favorite. All I wanted to talk to him about was the Pretty Boy Floyd record. He, he figured that out halfway through and was like, OK, we're just talking about Leather Boys with electric toys. And he said that the re because I was excited for him when he was started winning like Grammys or whatever for POD. And I'm like, that's my guy. I know. I know that I got a, a cassette dupe of that. So I, I know they did not move many copies of Leather Boys with Electric Toys. I'm glad that's guy that guy's making it. And he said the only reason why he survived into that new era was because his records had flopped. If any of those things had actually hit, he would have been a goner, but he, he'd, he'd been, managed to come out of the hair metal thing incognito by virtue of being assigned some of the worst, I mean, in the public opinion, mm -hmm. obviously. I, I, I own the Pretty Boy Floyd demos. That's a whole different story. I love that record. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if you read that part. <laughs> you got to that part of the book yet, um, where Howard... No, I haven't. Okay. I will. Trust me, I yeah, will. But essentially, Howard talks about doing the Pretty Boy Floyd record. He talks about... He did kind of three records there. He did Pretty Boy Floyd. He did the first Bang Tango record, which I think he did yep. first. Yep. And then, and then Pretty Boy Floyd, and then Tough. Um, and that was kind of his, like, hair metal you know, streak there. Um, and he's very open about the fact that especially he was basically at that time, I mean, he was very green and he was just trying to sound like all the other producers. He was like, well, what would Bo Hill do? What would Tom Werman do? So he's, you know, he acknowledges like he wasn't necessarily doing his best work. He was kind of following the trends the same way you could argue some of these bands were following the trends by 1989, but he pivoted really successfully and i guess for a long time he didn't really even acknowledge that he did the pretty boy floyd record he would talk about tough <laughs> i don't yeah, blame and, him and we talked to christy crash majors from pretty boy floyd in the book as well and he he is aware of that too and he's kind of annoyed by it that he like he knows howard benson has become very successful and he knows howard benson does not talk about pretty boy floyd and acts like it never even happened um and there's a little bit of soreness there but you know i mean that was it, it's a good sort of snapshot of that moment at the end of the eighties where it really was, it was not just the bands that were following the bands that had come five years earlier. It's now even the producers that are just like, how do I just make a record that sounds exactly like the poison record from six months ago? And that was a problem. Yeah. Everything had become, it, that was the logical end of the scene. It had become a copy of a copy mm -hmm. of a copy. It was a very, very inbred scene. Bands were only influenced by bands who'd been influenced by other bands that all played the same right. five clubs. And that can only last for so long. So the story with, with this book, the story of hair metal, you know, it's been told and retold many times, although rarely in this depth and rarely in the words exclusively of the people who lived it. Other than obviously this being a labor of love, why did you want to write this book? And I guess more importantly, Going in, did you feel like you had something new that you could help these artists convey about it? Was there a message or a takeaway that you thought the book was going to have ultimately? And was that the same message or takeaway that you ended up with that you went in starting 
uh, you know, believing that you would end up with, if that makes sense. I, th- I think the takeaway really was that, and I don't know, I don't think we went into it thinking that this would be it, but like the, the sort of common theme that cl- like clearly emerged and we weren't looking for it. You know, you can, when, when you're doing a, an oral history, you quickly realize because it's all uh, what you get is what you get. So the book sort of has a life of its own. You can't really push, you can't make people say things, but, but what really revealed itself to be the common theme is like this really insane work ethic and grit that every band in here has that, you know, Rich and I, as guys who were in bands that were trying to make it for many years in New York, you know, we're doing these interviews and we're realizing like, holy shit, we didn't do anything. Like sometimes I would be reading these interviews with what the guys would do in LA with the flyering and living on people's floors and this and that. I'm like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have last two weeks, you know, like the level of commitment and uh, to, to this and like lack of a backup plan and not like, Oh, I'm going to also have a job, but you know, designing uh commercials or what these guys had no backup plan and so that really became um the theme throughout from the smallest bands to the bands like poison is just like how hard they pushed and how hard they worked to be heard especially in the early 80s when this music was considered to be dinosaur music and the, and the record labels didn't want want it at all um as to why we did it i think it was really one a weird sense that if we didn't do it and somebody else did it, that we would be devastated. And two, that we were kind of the guys for the job or the people for the job. Like the, that, like our combination of like our love for this is real. And so we really wanted to give this music its due without like a wink, wink or quotation. Like there's my appreciation for this music. I mean, I understand some of it is more or less, good and some of it may be like a little bit juvenile or whatever but my my love of this music is like unmitigated really <laughs> uh, yeah i feel the same way now how many how many interviews did you do i mean it's a, it's a big long book uh what were the were there any standouts people i mean you, you kind of know the really charismatic guys going in did anybody surprise you uh and was there anybody that you really wanted to get that you couldn't get everybody's talking about nikki six in london a lot in the beginning part of the book that i got to i didn't see any quotes from nikki yeah. for example we uh we did over 200 interviews um original interviews for the book um you know most of the guys that we wanted we got i mean nikki is a guy we uh tom and i and nikki is in the book tom and i had spoken to him a lot over the years just through guitar world and rolling stone and other places um, so there's a lot of stuff from our interviews, but not, it's not necessarily from, you know, an interview done specifically for the book. Um, so that's why, you know, we don't necessarily have them talking about London. It's more about the Molly Crew stuff. I mean, there were tons that were just great interviews. I mean, guys, other guys that we didn't get that we would have wanted, we always point to like John Bon Jovi. Um, and we always, with the caveat that, well, we didn't really try very hard to get John Bon Jovi either, because it's very clear that John Bon Jovi is not going to sit down and talk about this stuff in any real way, because he has moved on from it. Um, and he's done very well for himself having moved on from it. So, you know, we didn't really expect to get him. And so we reached out, I think once and nothing really happened with it. And we just kind of went on from there. That said, everybody who talks about John Bon Jovi in the book has great things to say about him, which was one of the surprises because you just kind of figure the guy who won is also the guy that other people are going to take shots at. But everyone who came in contact with him, like he was helpful. He was a hard worker. You know, obviously he did a lot for Skid Row. He did a lot for Cinderella. So he was he he comes off really well in the book. Um, So it would have been interesting to get his perspective but you know john bon jovi is just not in that world anymore he's currently on the cover of the new wine spectator that's his that's that's (laughs) and that's like that's what he wants good for him but like that's how he wants to be positioned right 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 yeah it's a shame because you you can have it both ways and he should be able to have the victory lap of being the guy who both epitomized and transcended the sure. genre, the era but you know neither none of us have walked a mile in John Bon Jovi's <laughs> shoes so who are we to say let's talk about the drive of um of these bands that you were just talking about Tom so here's the thing right yes staying out all night wasted 
but still up until dawn flyering the sunset strip, sleeping upside down so their hair would look the way they wanted to when they woke up with all the Aquanet. But in many cases, not really taking the time to learn how to play, say, a guitar or a set of drums as well as one might, because that would seemingly also be a pretty critical factor in ascending to rock stardom. What do you make of, it almost feels looking back, and I, and I say to someone who loves the music and still listens to it consistently, like a precursor to the reality star thing, the um, the YouTube stars, the Instagram influencers, where people, fame was the goal. And, you know, I've heard the joke has been made about Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart was willing to do anything to be famous, even make good music. <laughs> like, how do you reconcile yourself to the fact that Faster Pussycat desperately wanted to be stars? And I remember I had a video of them playing, I don't know, Coconut Teaser or whatever. They came on stage and they said, hey, we just took like two months off. We wrote like eight new songs. And it's the whole first album. Clearly, they had just been like, yeah, it's fun hanging out at the cat house. But I think I'd like to go on tour now. So how's about I just dip out for a couple weeks and write an album? What do you make of the fact that these people were so hell-bent on making it. It meant everything to them. They had no backup plan. But many of them, no, there's plenty, George Lynch, etc. This doesn't apply to you. Many of them didn't take playing music all that seriously. They did not have real chops. There's a, there is a truth to what you're saying. I mean, I think that they, they all took being successful very seriously. Um, and not meaning like yes. they just wanted to get rich, but like they took... Like if this was going to be their job, and that's and that's something that's really stressed in the book, like how hard all these guys worked on the whole thing, meaning like the flyering and the look and the stage show, and just the whole vibe of it. So maybe it wasn't eight hours a day sitting on their bed practicing scales, but it was fully immersed in the idea of making this band and this entity successful. Um, but you touch on a good point because one of the things people think about with this music, and we have a whole chapter devoted to the quote unquote shredders because some of this music had some of the greatest guitar playing really in history, right? I mean, in rock guitar playing and your Lynch's and Martinis and Jakey Lee and Steve I and like all these guys, Red Beach. And so that is seen as sort of what this music is about. Like part of it is this shredding guitar thing. Um, but another part of it is a lot of these bands were almost like punk in their approach in this sort of anti, you know, this very kind of raw sloppy thing. And, you, you know, your faster pussycats and even like your poisons and yes. that kind of stuff, um, you know, your jet boys and like where it was really about just being this kind of like ragged, stonesy, you know, groovy type of thing. Um, and it wasn't about playing your guitar well. And that's actually not, you know, people don't, think about that side of this music as much. They think about the really slick technical thing. Um, but I love all those bands. You know, Faster Pussycat's one of my favorite bands from that era, Poison 2. Um, and that just showed that there was also something to like, you know, great songwriting and great songs and just, and just actually great attitude. Like being able to express that attitude and get it over in the music. Like Faster Pussycat has, you might love them, you might hate them, but like there's a ton of attitude in that music the same way there is in Guns N' Roses. Um, so these bands had, you know, other talents too, I guess. Not, it wasn't, you didn't have to be a shredder. It helped to have a shredder in your band, but you didn't actually need that in this world in order to make it. There's like a pervasive, uh, you know, at this point, everybody sort of the, the winners are clear. Right. You know, and we, we actually discovered I didn't know this before we started working on the band, like poisons the band actually with the most top 10 hits like billboard, actual pop hits of all of them. Like, like even, um, and they are also the band that are the most freak. Like it's astounding. Like when you actually look how many times they charted, it's like, it's bananas. Um, but they are the band that most frequently gets slagged in the, in the book, not by critics, but by their peers. Like people did not understand um, when that band was coming up, what their value was. You know, you've got guys from Doc and saying like, we heard them play and we cracked up because like we thought they sucked and same Brian Forsyth from kicks is the same thing. Um, Michael Wagner, who, you know, produced all of these records, mixes mixed the poison record and he was offered five thousand dollars or one point on the record and he was like i don't think this is going to go anywhere and he took the five thousand bucks you know it was like a two million dollar mistake but people didn't understand that at first there was this weird blind spot that um 
I think poison and then also Guns N' Roses on some level blows out. Like there's this assumption that virtuosity is one of the ingredients that is required for success in this genre. And it turns out really that the most successful bands of the genre were not populated with virtuosos. I mean, Slash is a great guitar player, but he's not like a, a shredder. Um, and same with Motley Crue. Everybody in the band is a competent musician. Tommy Lee is actually a great drummer, you know, yeah. and McMars is a great guitar player. But he's not, again, a, a, a freak of nature. But, you know, when you really look at the biggest and even Richie Sambora, a great guitar player, but not on the level of a Steve. I. So the bands that actually took it to the bank were not virtuosos. It really does boil down to the songwriting, you know, Um and honestly, the bands, the bands that were just partying and didn't take time to learn their instruments, but also couldn't write songs, we're not talking about right now. <laughs> yeah. You're talking about Poison. Let me ask you a question that I, I asked Brett Michaels. I wasn't totally satisfied with his answer to this. Maybe you can do better. This is something I did not come up with this. I read this in some um, magazine article and probably in the late 80s or early 90s, you know, back in the day. The writer described it as the great hair metal paradox. These guys grew their hair out. They teased it up. They wore tight leather pants. They wore women's shirts. They wore makeup. They learned how to put on the makeup pretty good. They took on female names. They competed pretty openly to see who could be the prettiest. And yet, it was a blatantly homophobic scene. And now it would be easy to say that a lot of these guys were self-loathing, closeted. I'm sure there was some of that. But I don't think there was a whole ton of that. What do you make, after all these years, of the great hair metal paradox? You have a bunch of uh, transvestites who hate gay people. Well, I would say that, I mean, I think that, you know, and this is something that's been talked about with this music a lot, obviously, yeah. like, sure. yeah, they're, they're guys that dressed up like women and in the process got lots and lots of women, you know, and like, and right. so that, and and the music is is clearly this very sort of macho, like, type of thing made for for young teenage boys for the most part, um, you know, and, and so, but I don't know. I mean, I think that a lot of, if you look, kind of look at the glam thing historically, it's like a lot of these guys were coming more from the kiss world than the New York dolls world, you know? Um, and, you know, people talk a little bit about the dolls in the book, I guess poison even talk about it a little bit, but really they're, they're, their template is more the kiss thing and the kiss thing. I mean, the makeup is used a little bit differently, but the makeup is about, it's not about this sort of gender bending type of thing. It's more just about becoming a superhero and becoming larger than life and becoming all domineering. And like, you're just more than human. And so I think there's this weird thing in the, in the eighties with the glam stuff where they're using it in a way that, it looks like the gender bending New York dolls thing, but it's actually meant to have the kiss effect, which is to make these guys into superheroes. Um, and so that's the way they acted. Like they basically, basically like stomped all over the, the earth and like, you know, grabbed all the liquor and women and everything they could. And just, you know, and, and it was like this Mad Max thing. And so like, so I think that that in their minds, that's what putting on all of this stuff was doing for them, um, rightly or wrongly. But, you know, how it looked from the outside is like, hey, those dudes in Poison look like chicks. That's weird. But in their minds, like, they were making themselves, like, more than, you know, beyond us mere mortals and, like, becoming something larger than that. And that's how they acted in the process. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the mental image that you, excuse me, uh, that, that you just conjured, that was the album cover for Pretty Boy Floyd. Yes. Yeah. Which is, which is also a takeoff on the cover of again, kits destroyer, right? Like right. that is, that is what they're trying to do here. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry, Tom, you were saying, no, I, I just don't know if the, I mean, I think the music was definitely also, you know, it was sexist. I don't know if the guys were more homophobic than your average, like you have to remember this is 1985. So, right. Like, so what are the, you know, everybody's got, the Heather Locklear posters on their wall, like what movies are, you know, it's like zapped with Scott Bayo and like Porky's. And like, so this is not like a super in yet enlightened time. You know, these are not people who grew up, you know, in downtown Manhattan, 
like they, they're coming from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. They're coming from Orange County. I don't particularly know if they're they're homophobic, but I don't think that it I don't think it deviates. Let's put it this way from the culture at large very much, you know, in, in terms of like people just making derogatory comments about, you know, gay people or whatever. I think like, you know, that, that you can find any number of movies or TV shows or even probably sitcoms where like that's a punchline or something like that. So I don't think that it's really, really. Yeah. I think that it's in line with the culture at the time. I mean, obviously not with like an, and it's sort of like an enlightened alternative culture that was coexisting and always has, but that wasn't the mainstream yet. Um, I I guess I would just add to that. I agree with Tom, like it's not our place to say whether or not any of these bands were homophobic. Um, in their, in their beliefs, but I don't, but if whatever their beliefs were, I don't, I don't think that they were more or less so than any other music you looked at at the time. I mean, there was plenty of that going on in rock and going on in pop, you know, and like, I mean, George Michael was not coming out as gay at the time. And there's a reason for that. Like it wasn't just in the hair metal world. It was like, you, you couldn't really do that back then. Um, And so there was a lot of, there was homophobia everywhere same way there is today, but, but probably more so um, and much less acceptance. And however, these bands were acting was probably more, wasn't particular to their culture. It was just more in line with the culture at large. And maybe because of some of this stuff, maybe there was a little less of it and maybe a little more acceptance, you know, maybe not, but, but I don't think that this, this music stands out to me as being more of that, of that. It's funny. I was actually having this discussion with my wife yesterday about Billy Squire. Um, sure. mm-hmm. We were talking and who like now is like incredibly involved with like Central Park Conservancy and, and blah, blah, blah. But like a guy who and to, to get to the distinction that um, that that Rich was making, his entire career is destroyed like i forget what year that video came out 82 83 something like that yeah by a video where he is acting in what is interpreted to be when he's dancing around in an effeminate fashion and um is there for this like you know rumor starts that he's gay and like literally that video destroys his career because that does not fly with uh, like uh, the American male, you know, like the, the hard rock audience. Um, but it wasn't, it's funny if he had, he was actually dressed pretty normally. It's how you, it was that he was acting in that way. He, mm-hmm. if he, he had been wearing makeup, but acting completely butch, like D Snyder, there would not have been a problem. You know, I mean, that's what's, that's what's so funny is like, you've got these guys like in poison and, twisted sister dressing almost like cross-dressing but they're they are totally still in their weird in their presentation like how they throw themselves quote-unquote male you know so yeah because somebody who knew about the billy squire thing but i was a little too young to have lived through it i was under the mistaken impression that it was the video for the stroke that had ruined him and i see that and i go oh yeah i can see where that was a little much for people and then a couple of years later i found out no no, no people loved the stroke yeah the stroke yeah. was perfectly fine yeah. it was this other video I go, okay i guess i guess yeah. you really just had to be there to know the real specific lines one could and could not cross right and so i just to, to summarize so like the culture was very you know the culture itself was not forgiving at that time. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you another big question that maybe there's no no answer to, but you, you talk in the book um, and you've talked in interviews about how the drive of these guys was to be as big as possible. Even when you're the opening act at a tiny little club, you're trying to make an arena show. That was the stated obvious goal. The assumption was let's be as big as we possibly can. Somewhere along the way in the 90s, I heard Bono say, that when he and the rest of you two realized that they had a shot at being truly huge, they just doubled down on all of their efforts to try to grab that brass ring. And he said, and it seemed to me with a little bit of bewilderment, maybe even disappointment, 10 or so years later, he saw the radio heads and the Pearl Jams of the world realize they had that same shot and go out of their way to jeopardize any opportunity that they might have to become household mainstream, your mom loves them kind of bands. 
what made that change? You know, before saying that Kurt Cobain thought Motley Crue sucked and he thought that Mud Honey was better, what changed in the minds of so many musicians overnight where being the biggest band in the world, which is on its face a fairly obviously cool thing, could go from being the most desirable thing to be something that you would actively avoid? Well, one thing is that you 2 had the chance to become the biggest band in the world after they had made six records. Right. You know, whereas like Pearl Jam, everyone got to to witness Nirvana become the biggest band in the world in three months and then self immolate So I think there might be a velocity curve, like a, a curve there that was greatly accelerated that made it seem highly less uh, desirable to do that in, you know, in like one or two records. That's a great point. So I think that's part of it. You know, I think that, um, that, you know, the, and, and then part of it is like punk is, is being, you know, some people really are just punk rockers. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, if you look at the bands in the nineties too, like there really is um, like, obviously, I mean, they, they, a lot of these grunge bands or whatever, they grew up on classic rock and, and these big arena type bands, but they also really did, grow up on the underground. And I think to them, like they really, a lot of them really did see like you could have a good living and a good career, like, you know, having a solid fan base and being able to tour around and play largish clubs and, you know, have these awesome sweaty shows and like put out some records. Like that seemed like a real path to like a good life um, because they grew up on bands that they had seen do that. Um, you know, or maybe, and now they were even having more success than those bands that they grew up on. Whereas a, a lot of these bands in the eighties, like they grew up on Van Halen and again, and kiss and all this stuff. And like in their mind, right from the very beginning, like being in a rock and roll band meant conquering the world, you know, and because that's what they grew up loving. And that was the world that they were immersed in like Aerosmith and like all that stuff. Like these bands were the biggest around. Um, and so right from the beginning, like that was their template. And that's why, you know, Quiet Riot or Wasp or whoever, all these bands, when they're just playing these dingy little clubs like the Troubadour on the Strip and off the Strip, they're playing it like they're playing Madison Square Garden. Um, and they have the lights and all the effects and they have the outfits and they're just doing it, you know, and they have the big drum solo and the big guitar solo. Doesn't matter if there's only 200 people there, they're playing like it's 20,000 people. So that was their goal right from the beginning. That was their mindset right from the beginning. So, you know, that was the only thing that they knew how to reach for. You mentioned in the, uh, in the introduction to the book that, you know, the book is not here to apologize for the misogyny of the lyrics and you didn't ask any of the bands to, and nor should you. Again, very much like the homophobia thing. It was of the culture at the time, but a lot of these guys, as you say in the introduction, they're their dads, their grandparents. They've raised little girls. I wouldn't expect you. It would have been inappropriate for you to press these guys to uh, reevaluate and maybe offer second thoughts about the misogyny of the lyrical stuff in the videos. Did any of them offer that stuff unprompted? I think some, and I would actually say that we did press them. Yeah, a lot. Um, and some people, like nobody was really shot. Nobody really shied away from it. But like some people. I mean, one example would be like Tammy Down from Faster Pussycat, who probably went into it more in depth than anyone else in the book. Like he did not, he was not apologizing for any of it. He's like, this is what we were. This was the time. But I think even at one point it might be in the book or it might not. He's like, I don't want to go there. Like, you know, it's too like with all this like Harvey Weinstein shit that's going on in the world right now. Cause this is a few years ago. Um, so they're definitely aware that it's a different time, but they were pretty open about, talking about it and we were we felt okay with pressing them on it because it wasn't the only thing we were looking for like if you're talking to them for an hour about their career and their music and their creativity like it's totally valid to ask them some of these questions for me I think and maybe Tom felt differently the interesting thing was talking to some of the the women that we interviewed for the book whether it was people like Sharon Osborne or Lita Ford or some of the clothing designers um, and getting their take on it and a lot of them didn't really have much to say. I mean, these are people that were successful. So they had some measure of protection because, you know, Sharon Osbourne was not going to be fucked with because she was a woman. Like She wasn't going to be fucked with no matter what. So she didn't have to deal with any of this stuff, really. Um, 
but you know, Lita Ford did and Vixen did and, and some of the other people did. And like, and so I felt that I found it interesting to get their perspective on having to live in this ultra macho world and function in it and find their way through it. I'm assuming you both read Lita's book. It's astounding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So there's some interesting stuff, I think, in our book from from the female perspective about trying to navigate through this world. I mean, and we do like, you know, it's funny. The one guy who really addresses it head on is like there's a section where Kip Winger talks about, you know, he's like, you know, fucking 17, man. I'll never the one line that like keeps haunting me is, you know, uh, what is it? Her dad says she's too young, but she's old enough for me or something. And he's like, yeah. that fucking line just follows me around. He's like, I hated that line. He's like, it's the one line in the song I didn't write. Bo Hill wrote that line. Um, and, you know, he's saying it. He's not unowning it. You know, he's not like, but, you know, he is obviously someone who's gone on to like write classical pieces that were Grammy nominated, et cetera, et cetera. Like he, he definitely, um, you know, I don't think he feels like he he's a, going to hell about it, but he definitely sort of regrets having doing it, do, done it, and um, he's aware. I don't think any of them are not aware. And it, it, it's funny because a lot of the lyrics, it, it, it's it's an interesting thing, and we did bring it up with people. And, and you know, uh, the other thing, which we were talking about before, is the sort of uh, monkey see, monkey do thing, right? Like, it's like if you see... If you're in 1986 and you see that bands who have lyrics about talking dirty to me or whatever, people are just writing the lyrics that they think are going to at some point make them popular. And once that it is, it is established that that is the template that works, then that is itself perpetuates, you know, um, there are very few bands like Queensryche who start singing about really about politics and who make it, it was much easier to write about, you know, a song about a girl and there you go and MTV and boom. And then you, you know, and so, but it all becomes quite formulaic at a certain point. So I don't even know how much agency really each person is exercising. They're just, you know, they're executing the program on some level. Right. Yeah. We don't ask, you know, gangster rap is really to apologize for writing songs about shooting people at a certain era. It became obvious if you were going to be in that lane and if you were going to try to make a lot of money rapping, that was probably the lane to be in. You were going to do that or else you were setting off on a very, very, a far more challenging path than uh, than just getting famous the conventional way, which is hard enough as it is. A lot of the bands I said, I only got to the early part of the book mention they mention alcohol. No surprise. They mention cocaine. No surprise. A lot of quaaludes. Now, I don't think I've ever seen a Quaalude in my entire life. Are, are we? Sh- I mean, they were right to some extent. You know, Coke's got its downsides, but Coke has its place in, 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 in partying when you're at a certain age, a certain place. Where did Quaaludes, Quaaludes go? Are we, are we all missing something collectively in having let Quaaludes leave our, our party society? I mean, I would say that I, I certainly missed the Quaalude era right? as well, but, you know... It didn't surprise me when we were writing this book that that's what kept coming up at the beginning, because that's, you know, whenever you read any of these books or hear these guys talk from the late set, especially the late seventies, like that was the thing. Um, Why it was the thing, I don't really know. You'd probably have to talk to one of them, but um, if anything, like, I don't know that I feel like I missed anything by, by missing the Quaaludes, but maybe I missed something by missing one of uh, Bill Gazzari's Quaalude parties because that was (laughs) talked about a lot. And I mean, that was probably, either a lot of fun or like really freaking scary. Um, maybe a little bit of both, but, but yeah, I think it's, I mean, that's an interesting part of the book where you have guys like, um, you know, Michael Sweet from Striper um, and, and Stephen Piercy from Rat, cause they're both house bands at Gazzari's in those days. And they're getting invited to these Quaalude parties and everything. And it's just like, it gives you a good sort of slice of life. I mean, these guys are like teenagers and they're just like, you know, now, I mean, they've seen and done everything a million times, but like there's this, just these wide eyed kids getting exposed to for the first time. And I love that part of the book. Um, Cause you can really sort of feel, you know, kind of just the moment and like the openness of the moment and how youthful all these guys were at the time. And how the fantasy that they portrayed in record was real for many of them is it's, it sounds amazing. You go and you play a show on the strip and some beautiful blonde's parents are away. And so she takes you back to her house in Beverly Hills. They were to an extent singing what they actually were experiencing. 
totally. And they were also, you know, they were 70s kids. The first yeah. wave of these bands grew up, you know, they were probably they were probably 18 in 1980, maybe 18 in 1979, you know. Um, so these the people in the first wave, the like Quiet Riots, the Motley Crue guys, the, the Rat guys, these are really 70s teens, you know, like who grew up. Then that's so that's why there's quaaludes. Like it's 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 the tail end, it's the tail end of the 70s, you know. Um, it's not the beginning, it's also the beginning of the 80s, but it really is these kids who grew up in that era of of smoking weed and and and, and you know, fog hat and seeing Judas Priest and like heavy metal parking lot. Like it's it's a real time of uh, like that's what they're bringing with them. You know, it's not the the sort of and it's funny because then you when you hear people like the guys in Nelson talking about how they were already on the scene then like playing. But they were in a new wave band in like 1980 playing with like um, the Plimsolls and, and all these bands in L.A. And he's like, those were the fucking scary people because they were all doing heroin. You know, and so like it's a weird thing where you've got the 80s is really starting with the new wave bands. And that's like this is a whole other darker scene. But these a lot of these guys were more 70s, you know, who started. And um, that was also part of their battle, you know, is to convince people that they were not a holdover, that they were still that hard rock and long haired dudes was not going to go the way of the quaalude, that it would still be around in the 80s and, and a vital thing. And it might well not have been had it not been for MTV. I think it's f- fair to speculate that the whole thing goes away if it's you don't just just so happen to have a very telegenic scene at a time when you can yeah. use telegenic bands to sell records. One last question. It's big, borderline, unanswerable thing. I kind of seem to specialize in those, at least when I'm talking to you guys. Um, musically, this stuff to me feels like a bit of a of a dead end, in the sense that. The 80s, I mean, more than just about any decade I can think of, it's just been recycled and recycled and recycled. And now John Mayer's got a brand new album that's just couldn't. He literally has the nice price sticker on the album. The 80s thing, it's every five years, everybody who's contemporary dips back into the 80s thing, but not so much the hair metal thing. I know a lot of these bands are still out on the road and I know they're doing well. I know Rock of Ages was very successful, but we haven't had, say, a Lenny Kravitz of hair metal who comes along and reclaims that stuff and does it faithfully without their tongue being too far in cheek. Why? When so many, when everything it seems, I mean, I remember when La Bamba became a hit for the second time, for goodness sake. Why does it seem like this stuff will never be viable for a musical renaissance like seemingly everything that's ever been successful has been you know i think that i mean obviously there's still lots of bands coming out that that take on that play this music um but you're right in the sense that yeah like they're they're pretty they're pretty niche and that will probably always be the case i mean maybe i think in other countries it's a little less niche like i think in in Mm -hmm. sweden and you know parts of scandinavia like these bands achieve some level of like real true success. Um, I think the original singer of Shotgun Messiah is still touring over there. Right. Zinni. I'd go see him. <laughs> yeah, me too. But you know, me but too. but and there's new bit, you know, there's your crash diets and like all these bands a few years ago we had Veins of Jenna and that kind of stuff. But it, it stays pretty niche. Maybe the the closest that we've come is like the darkness, but they're a band that really has nothing to do with any of this stuff, you know, because they're they're just pulling from the 70s. But I think that maybe it's because this this music is so specifically defined. Like, you know, there's still bands that sound like grunge bands. They're not called grunge bands anymore. It's basically just modern active rock or whatever horrible name you want to give it. But there's like grungy elements because it's like just the sound of the guitars and your drop tuning and whatever, whatever it is. But with with this 80s stuff, it's it's the sound, but it's the look. It's like what makes it great, I guess, is to me, is what will make it difficult to reemerge because you, it's everything you do is so of a piece. It's like you got to have the hair and you got to look a certain way and you got to sound a certain way. You got to have this attitude. Like you can't really, not, not 100% of the people in the 80s who played this music did not have long hair, but there was certainly not a band of, 
people, you know, there wasn't a band that made it where none of them had long hair. Like you, you had to have the look um, and you had to have all these pieces. And so that's kind of what made it great in a way. It was like, this, this was the thing and everybody went for it and everybody piled on and tried to get more and more and more. And like, that's part of the reason we love it. Um, and maybe that's why it's so specific to an era and won't come back in the same way. Um, but it will keep coming back whether it's people getting interested in these same bands or like, you know, just having these niches for some of these newer bands, like it's always going to be there. And also, I mean, like you can't hold both things in your hand at the same time, right? You can't, you've sort of enumerated for us in the last hour, the number of ways in which this music would now be culturally unacceptable. And then you're asking, how could this music, how can this music not exist again in its pure form? And it's like, well, there you go. There's your answer, right? It can't exist because it can't exist. Um, because it would not be accepted <laughs> and it would be so you can't have music with these lyrics you can't have music with these videos um there you go you're done so then what's left is the you know the the you've got the sort of the sound but that's not the music you can't so if the attitude is not permissible the lyrical context is not permissible um the uh masculinity is not permissible you've removed a lot of it and also i mean at the same time really there's never going to be another monoculture where a rock band is as important as any rock band was in the 80s which is the other answer to bono as well it's like yeah man but like you got famous in the 80s you know, yeah. The, <laughs> well, I the, think he was right the, about the bands that he said Pearl Jam and Radiohead could have been U2, Octung Baby, Big when they had the, you know, at the OK Computer type era. Yeah. But like, so I think that like, but that's the other thing is like, there's not going to be a, you know, there are a lot of rock bands out there, you know, doing a really good job. You've got Pretty Reckless who are like actually doing a lot at radio and, blah, 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 but, and, and you know, Hailstorm and all these other bands. But like, will they get like the bandwidth share of a band from 1986 that was on mtv which we all watched you know and they then that video was on 20 times a day it's it's actually unfeasible to create a band that would be a juggernaut like def leppard or guns and roses or poison it can it can't the mechanism is no longer in place so so a lot of reasons but those are a couple well, uh, the book is, it's a lot of fun and I barely scratched the surface of it. I'm definitely planning on, on finishing the whole thing. This is a, this is valuable work that you've done. Thank the you. Definitive, the definitive historical dot, you maybe wouldn't call it that, but you got all the guys and all the ladies and they all talked about all the stuff. So this is the definitive, I'll say it for you, the definitive historical document of the eighties hard rock era, as we will call it. Can I give you, can I have you call my mom and tell her that it's valuable work? <laughs> <laughs> it's too late to blur. I, I apologize. There's a paperback. Uh, thank you so much for your time, yeah. Tom. Oh, it would be my extreme pleasure. Right. Tom Andridge, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, so thanks for having us. But a good time. All right. Yep. Thanks. Nothing but a good time. The uncensored history of the '80s hard rock explosion. Take care, guys. See ya. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you one last time for listening to this episode of The Tully Show. I hope you found it illuminating and enlightening. I tried to focus on more of the larger societal ramifications of what did hair metal mean. You've heard me talk more than enough about Pretty Boy Floyd's guitar tone. Now that we're done here, one last reminder, go check out my new podcast with the people's champ, Jesse Mae Peluso. You can hear episode one of The Deuce exclusively at patreon.com slash the deuce podcast. The URL is on all of both of our socials, patreon.com slash the deuce podcast. Thank you.